This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. All right, today I am really excited to be joined by competitive karaoke singer Robert <laughs> Murphy. Uh, Bob, welcome. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So I have to give some additional information. In addition to being a fiercely competitive karaoke singer, you are an economist, a professor of economics at Texas Tech's Free Market Institute. Um, you're a prolific author. Uh, you've written papers on tons of stuff. You've written popular stuff. You've written... Um, the Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, actually, was the first, that was where I first heard of you many, many years ago. I saw that in Barnes & Noble. And you're the co-host of Contra Krugman, uh, a podcast with Tom Woods, where you dissect Paul Krugman's New York Times column. So welcome again. And um, today I want to get into a lot of stuff. But first, I want to just give you a chance to uh, give me a little of your background in terms of what got you interested in economics. Sure. So uh, my dad, when I was younger, uh, like junior high, early high school, my dad uh, listened to Rush Limbaugh. He you know, called himself a political conservative. And so I started reading like my dad got these. It was called the Conservative Chronicle. It was like a, a weekly digest. You know, this is before the Internet <laughs> of all the, of all the uh, conservative writers in America, like their op ed pieces. And so that would come weekly. And I realized when I was reading that, that the one, the pieces I really liked the most were the ones from The Economist, Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams. Hmm. And so I re- and I realized that, you know, I'm not really conservative. I'm, I'm more of a libertarian, you know, as, as my thinking evolved and I understood what those terms meant. And yeah, just the more I read about free market economics, the more interested I was, you know, Henry Hazlitt. And then I, I found the Austrian school. And as a senior in high school, I tried to go through Mises' Human Action and that's when I said, I, this is what I have to do. So I went to Hillsdale College and then NYU to get my degrees um, in economics. And I taught for at Hillsdale for three years, economics, you know, in the Austrian tradition. And then I ended up in the financial sector. And then after a long circuitous route, now, I'm, as you say, I'm back at the uh, back in academia at the Free Market Institute of Texas Tech. But through it all, I've, you know, I'm in the libertarian political theory and Austrian economics. What was it that, was there like any particular insight that made you say, I need more of this economic stuff? You know, sometimes like for me, it was when I read Bastiat's That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Unseen. And it was like this just light bulb that was like, yes, that's why all this crap that people say about the stimulus effect of government spending is wrong. I felt like it was wrong in my gut, but I didn't understand it. Like, aha. And then I I just had to have more. Was there any particular insight of economics that made you sort of like get that hunger? Well, in general, I was just really fascinated with the idea of unintended consequences that just because, you know, government program might have some certain official aim, it might actually have the opposite outcome. And I know that's a really trivial point, but I I can remember when I was in junior high and that was the first time I heard that. And that had never occurred to me before. And I was like, wow. And uh, I guess there, there was a particular thing. I think it was Walter Williams wrote, you know, a defense of free trade. Because at the time, you know, people worried about car imports from Japan, I think was probably the thing people were worried about back then. And just, you know, he went through point by point, just expl- given the case for free trade. I, I don't remember the exact argument. He probably relied a lot on Bastiat, you know, those kind of arguments. But 
And then he ended up with, well, you know, so what if, if they get get all those dollars and, and they don't do anything with it or the, if they buy, you know, U.S. property or buildings or hotels, what, what are they going to do? Ship them back to Japan or so, you know, and it was just so like just every single possible objection he just knocked down. And I, I just, you know, I was like, wow, I this is amazing, you know, and that I wanted to, to study that more. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean, Joe, the the feeling of, oh, my goodness, it's not all attributable to, oh, people are stupid or irrational or greedy. There's like a logical, you know, systematic way to understand. I remember Steven Landsberg's book, The Armchair Economist, was really great with this as well. Like, why does popcorn cost so much at the movie theater? Why, you know, like these questions that it's easy to just say, oh, because people are dumb, people are greedy. But economists, they sort of dispassionately will say, well, let's take a look at the incentives at play here. And there's something about that that just felt so invigorating. Like, there, you can discover reasons. You can predict certain types of behavior, uh, and that's that's a really empowering thing when you sort of get, wrap your head around it. Yeah, and, and actually, Landsberg's. Um, I mean, I was in college already, you know, majoring in economics when I read Landsberg's book. So, I mean, at that point, you know, it was I was already well down that path. But yeah, his his book was great in terms of like a sort of pop book that you know you could get at Barnes and Noble. It was the, you know that level of accessibility and readability. But yet it was, you know, sort of pure theory and it really just you know, made economics fun. And I was just amazed, like, yeah, he pulled it off. You can you can make a fun book that would be a Barnes and Noble that's actually just about economic theory. That's amazing. So I've got to ask if you're from the Midwest, because your accent makes me feel right at home. I'm from Michigan. I well, I'm from upstate New York, but I you know spent a lot of time because Hillsdale's in Michigan, so I don't know. And then I lived in Nashville for a long time, so I don't know. <laughs> so it's so you're that's... not actually born in like that's so funny because you have your accent reminds me of like Illinois, like the Great Lakes region, Wisconsin and Chicago, you know, Michigan. Mm-hmm. So I don't maybe there's something in upstate New York, um, but on the on the popular book front, so you know Lanesburg did a great job with that, but you did as well. So I was I worked at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, and I had just started, and I was running this thing called Students for a Free Economy, where I'm trying to go over or all over the state of Michigan to college campuses and try to get students interested in free markets. And this is before like Ron Paul or anything. So when you said free markets, no one knew what you were talking about. They hadn't heard of it. They didn't know what libertarian meant. Just a few years later, after Ron Paul ran for president, all that changed and everything became much easier. People had heard of it before. Um, But so I was trying to find, like, what are some resources that in a really fun introductory level way can sort of convey the basics of the way an, an economy works and that doesn't come from this sort of central planning, you know, sort of Keynesian or worse yet, Marxist view or whatever. And so I'm I'm scroll I'm looking through Barnes and Noble, and I come across the politically incorrect guide to capitalism. And so based on the cover, I thought, okay, this is just one of those books that's meant to like shock you and just sort of be like sort of red meat for I don't know conservatives or something. I didn't really. I was kind of like, okay, well, let's see what we got here. I flip it open and I just kept page after page after page reading, and I kept thinking, whoever wrote this, because I was really into the Austrian school and all this stuff. Whoever wrote this really knows their stuff. This is like really legit stuff. This is amazing. I can't believe that this large publishing house agreed to publish this and that it's sitting on the shelves in Barnes and Noble. Like I I was truly shocked. And I think I emailed you at the time. um, You were a professor at Hillsdale. But tell me about the genesis of writing the Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism. How did that come about? Okay. Well, and, and thank you for those those remarks. I appreciate it. Um, to, to this day, I would tell people that's one of the most fun books to get started if you just want a basic overview of, of economics and to sort of pique your interest. It's a really great starting spot. 
Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, yeah, what I tried to do with that was to, on each of those topics, to distill the best stuff that I had read, you know, in terms, you know, because I would have read lots of people talking about those issues and just try to break it down and what are the most compelling, succinct arguments that I've encountered on, the, on each of those issues. So I think, um, I mean, I, I, well, to, they, they, you know, so it was Regnery and they had this, the Politically Incorrect Guide series. And as the name suggests, and as you said, in terms of the marketing, they do try to shock people and, and you know cover the, the the cover of the book and have the chapter headings and stuff all have sort of real provocative counterintuitive claims that you know the mainstream media would run from you know, that was kind of the <laughs> shtick but then you know ideally when they pull it off they would have the author would actually go through and when you read the analysis by the end of it you say oh yeah actually that claim that initially sounded so shocking actually is common sense i never thought of it like that you know that's the way they would try to do it so uh, Tom Woods was the the first one in that series. It was his was on American history and was a you know New York Times bestseller, and so that sort of you know gave the publisher the the confidence to do more in that series. I believe um, Tom probably t- gave them my name in terms of they said, "Hey, we're tr- we want to do one on economics. Who should we go to?" I'm I think that t- that Tom you know probably said, "Why don't you you know give this guy a shot?" And so that's you know they inter- interviewed me and that's how it worked. And I and I will say, I, like you, I was. I was concerned that they were going to want me to tone certain things down. And there were things I had in there that eventually didn't make the final cut in terms of material. But yeah, they, to their credit, they never pressured me and said, Hey, you're, you're kind of radical on this point. Maybe soften it a little bit. They, they never did that. They were, they were happy with the thing. So yeah, even though it was a mainstream publisher, um, yeah, I did. I, I was not pressured to tone it down or whatever. So I, you know, some of the stuff I look at it now and, you know, maybe I could have clarified my position a little bit, but it, you know, I, I pretty much stand behind the, the stuff that I wrote in that. So they, they did make you remove the chapter titled taxation is theft, but everything else was good to go. <laughs> <laughs> good to go. Um, so the Contra Krugman podcast that you and Tom Woods do, I've, I've got to ask, is it like, is it obsessive to devote a whole podcast to, to one guy? <laughs> well, yeah. So there too. Yeah. So for people who don't know, yes, every week, you know, we take on an op-ed that Paul Krugman, the arch Keynesian has written and go through and critique it. And the point, like you say, it's, it's to be entertaining, but also to teach people sound economics. So usually we're disagreeing with Krugman, but occasionally if we think he got it right, we'll say, we'll say that. Um, yeah. It, that, again, that was Tom's idea. And when and you're right, when he first pitched it to me, I did think, now nah, we don't want to do that because then we're on the defensive and we're giving Krugman, you know, the ability to set the terms of the debate and, and we're, we're giving him this platform. But, you know, on the other hand, he did win the Nobel Prize and he's a lot more famous than we are. And, you know, he's got a perch at the New York Times and and he is, you know, he's, he's a smart guy. So in terms of somebody formulating the Keynesian stance on something and you typically attacking the free market view, Krugman's a pretty good, you know, uh, opponent and so that that's that's why we we pick and because he's so obnoxious in terms of <laughs> somebody's got to stand up to this bully you know he's a good choice no it, it's a great uh it's a great show and just the fact that his that his name is so prominent and his stuff is so accessible if you're just sort of a casual observer of you know uh, people's claims about what's going on in the economy it'd be very easy to just only come across him so having something that says hold on there's another viewpoint I think is great. So this is a good segue into, you mentioned Keynesianism a few times. Um, I mentioned the Austrian school you did as well. Most people who are listening to this show probably know this, but not all that in economics. And in fact, I I talked to a young person who graduated from 
I think it was Michigan State. I don't remember. It was several years ago. And he's like, yeah, I've graduated with an econ major. And I said, oh, cool. And I said, uh, have you heard of Hayek? And he's like, oh, Salma Hayek? Yeah, she's really hot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and as we started talking, he had he was unfamiliar with the concept of different schools of thought in economics, period. Like the wow. awareness that within his own discipline, mm-hmm. there are like these broad intellectual traditions that have very different views on things and there are different debates. So not everyone knows sort of the history of, of economic thought or that there are these different schools. So really briefly, when you say um, the Austrian school or the Keynesian school or uh, maybe the Chicago school, which Milton Friedman is associated with, also called monetarist, um, what are you referring to? What do those schools mean? And what are sort of the, the distinctions between them? And, and what makes you say that you kind of come from the Austrian perspective? Okay, sure. And obviously, for our format here, this is going to be a very simplified version. Totally. I want a but, teaser so yeah. people that get interested can mm-hmm. go look look further. Yeah. But you're right. I guess it doesn't, at first I was surprised, but I guess it doesn't shock me now that I think about it, that someone young might not have realized, because I think a lot of modern economists they think of this idea of schools of thought as being this quaint, you know, uh, thing from the 1800s or something, or, you know, that, oh, nowadays, you know, we're very, we just do whatever the cutting edge, where the science leads us. And there's no schools of thought. There's just good economics. So, but, but I, th- I think that that's a mistake. Um, and so the, the schools of thought, you know, it's just different uh, ways of approaching these issues. And as you say, the two big ones in the 20th century were the Keynesian school, obviously getting the name from John Maynard Keynes, who in 1936 had the general theory come out of a book that famously explained the the Great Depression, saying it was the failure of old school classical economics and, you know, basically blaming recessions or depressions on a, a collapse in demand. And so the Keynesian remedy was to figure out ways of propping up spending to increase aggregate demand to ensure full employment. Uh, the Chicago School, obviously named because it, it's originally the, the people happened to be at the University of Chicago, um, more free market oriented um, on many issues. But even there, you know, one of their big uh, components of their view and you associate with what's called monetarism is that Milton Friedman thought that the problem of the Great Depression was that in the the 20s that the the Federal Reserve stopped pumping in enough money and that that's why the stock market crashed. And then the problem of the 30s was just, you know, that that the Fed foolishly was asleep at the wheel and let the money supply collapse. And so that, you know, so Friedman was saying it's not that we needed to have big government deficits to boost spending. We just needed the central bank to not be asleep on the job. So the Austrian school is so named because, as you might guess, the original founders were from the country of Austria in the late 1800s. Um, in, in the 20th century, their big proponents were Ludwig von Mises and then Friedrich Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize, author of The Road to Serfdom, is probably you know the most famous member of the Austrian school in terms of a pop book. And the Austrian school, uh, very individualistic in the sense that they want to explain economic outcomes not by big macro models, but by analyzing decisions made by the individual and then how do those things come together. Um, also very free market, but a huge difference in terms of practical relevant differences. Uh, the Austrians say the business cycle is because of artificially low interest rates that spawn an unsustainable boom. And so in the Austrian view, the, the reason you have recessions or depressions is that there was a prior period where entrepreneurs were making bad investments because they were misled by an artificially low interest rate. 
And so in the Austrian view, the, the way you prevent the boom-bust cycle is on the front end. You don't want to have, for example, the central bank, quote, stimulating the economy by slashing interest rates and pumping in a bunch of money, that that's just setting the economy up for a big crash. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the Austrian school, as you mentioned, is kind of this this whole methodological approach to you know the way that the science of economics is done and you start with kind of things that you can reason to deductively some basic principles and then you know from there you can kind of build out things like demand curves and all this the the lie of the, the law of demand and etc and just one subset of that is the way that Austrians approach business cycle um, theory or you know the trade cycles or whatever you want to call it um, but that's probably the thing that Austrian economics is the most well known for and certainly after the housing crash all of a sudden people were talking about Hayek there were rap videos about Keynes versus Hayek that became popular this is sort of the well-known part uh, or, or at least in a, you know sort of at times the Austrian business cycle theory is the well-known um, part of the of the you know approach of the Austrians to economics. So I want to dive into that in a little bit more depth. Now, I know you had an episode, I think it was episode 99 of the Contra Krugman podcast, where you you do a nice job, you and Tom do a really nice job summarizing what the Austrian business cycle theory is, and you just touched on it here. But if we could go just a little bit further on that, um, that'd be great. If I'll start with an analogy that works well for me, and you tell me if this is effective or if I'm missing something important here. I have always found an effective analogy for the, the way the Austrians view the business cycle is with caffeine for your, for your body. So if you have a crash after coffee, if someone said, oh, well, the problem is you need more stimulus, take some more caffeine. Now that can give you another boost but you know that that boost is going to produce another crash. And the more you try to fix the crash with a boost, the more of a caffeine addict you get until pretty soon you hit a point where like once you you know move on to cocaine or something, like <laughs> your body's just going to shut down. So the real cause is that you mixed up your body's signals in the first place by injecting caffeine that made your body think it wasn't, it didn't need rest when it actually did. And the wise thing would be to sort of get that rest that you need and you have a more sustainable, you know, productive approach. And so the Austrians would say the problem is that you keep taking these caffeine injections and it's going to inevitably cause a crash. And the Keynesians will say, oh, these stupid crashes, if only we could inject more stimulant in there to, to you know, perk everything back up again. Is that a, a fair, crude analogy of the difference in those two views of the business cycle? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, in a, in a first cut, just to, to introduce the outsider to it, yeah, I, th I think that's fine. I know I've seen some Austrians, they or some people use, like, the, the drug addict metaphor you know, for a different kind of drug. And, you know, and I, and I know some Austrians, you know, look down their noses on it, but I, I don't see what the problem is to a first approximation. I think, you know, the average person gets that. Um, you mentioned the Hayek Keynes rap video, and you know there they they likened it to a you know a drinking binge, and it's a similar kind of thing. So you're you're right. I think that that's the issue, and it, and the reason it's so relevant is because if the Austrian diagnosis is correct, then the so-called Keynesian remedies are just setting you up for an even even worse crash. So it's not just that they're you know a disagreement; it's that what the Keynesians are saying is the exact wrong thing to do. That if really the reason you're in such a mess is because of, in your analogy, you know, you've been taking too much ever-increasing doses of caffeine, then clearly someone who says, well, who cares what the cause is? The point is you feel really tired right now and you got to do your work, so why don't you just 
you know, take this energy drink, that person's doing you a grave disservice. And and that's what, and I'm not putting words in their mouth. I mean, Paul Krugman literally was saying during the midst of this recent slump, like, let you, you know, right now, the important thing is to boost aggregate demand. We can worry later about what caused this. The important thing right now is to restore full employment by, you know, whatever means necessary. And so, well, you know, he's literally saying, let's not worry about why we're in this crisis right now. Let's just get out of it. Well, if the Austrians are right, you're just going to cause an even worse crisis down the road. So one of the things that, you know, I had, I think I had one econ class as a, an undergrad and it was, I was a political science major. So of course, you know, you only need to take one, <laughs> one econ class to understand political economy. Um, and the one thing I remember, and it always, it always struck me as sort of odd was this idea that business cycles are just one of the costs, an inherent part of capitalism. And yeah, now that the Soviet Union fell, we know that like pure communism sucks and that's not going to work. But unfortunately, when you have a largely free market or partially free market, you have booms and busts because people get irrationally exuberant or whatever it might be and things get pushed up and then they crash and you have these big booms and busts. And, you know, there's debate on the extent to which government can reduce those or smooth those out. And some people think not at all. Some people think a lot. But there seemed to be this presented idea that like booms and busts are just an inherent part, this natural business cycle that's built into capitalism. And the Austrians claim that's not the case, that the there's nothing about a free market that inherently is going to produce this business cycle of booms and busts. So... If that's true, does, would the Austrian approach be making the claim that an economy, a totally free market, would just be like perfectly stable, sort of, you know, this sort of stable, <laughs> stable, like uh, efficient market all the time without any, without any, you know, any booms and busts at all? Yeah, I think your your summary is basically right, and, and that is what I really liked about the Austrian view is that, like you, I too had encountered people who were generally fans of free market capitalism. And of course, you know, most economists certainly in the U.S. didn't like, uh, you know, they thought they thought that central planning, that that experiment had failed quite clearly. But yeah, they would say, oh, yeah, you know, the, these wild ups and downs of the market economy, that's just the price you pay for innovation. And, you know, even just Schumpeter has some, you know, uh, trains of thought that might lead you to believe that. But as you say, in the Austrian view is developed by Ludwig von Mises and elaborated by Friedrich Hayek. Uh, that's not the case. It's it's artificially low interest rates that do it. And, and you know, wh where do those artificially low interest rates come from? Well, again, I don't want to get bogged down in too much technicality. But go, go ahead, though. You can oh, take okay. it as far as All you right. want. Well, sure. So the idea is being that if the banking system is, in a sense, advancing more loans than there are real savings to back it up. And so when you have what's called fractional reserve banking, that's that's possible you know, in terms of the accounting, like how could it be that banks are, in a sense, lending out more than the genuine savings that their customers have deposited there? And it's, you know, it, it's because the bank and, you know, you go and put $100 in the bank and then in a sense they can lend out more than 100 That's what makes that mismatch possible. And so Mises thought that in a genuine market economy where the government doesn't give any favors to the banks, that sort of practice, there'd be strict limits on it. Um, you know, if any one bank tried to ex inflate too much and expand its loan portfolio, it would lose its its reserves in the vaults to the other banks pretty quickly. And so Mises thought, though, that under central banking, if you think about it, we, even the history textbooks, they what do they teach is 
one of the main reasons to have the Federal Reserve, for example, they say, oh, to act as a lender of last resort. And that sounds good, except when you realize the reason a particular bank might be in trouble is that they've been be behaving recklessly. <laughs> so to have a lender of last resort means to bail them out when they've been making too many loans. And so Mises thought actually a central bank serves to cartelize the banking system to exclude, you know, to make it harder for new entrants to come in and then make it easier for the existing big established banks to inflate in unison. And if any one of them, you know, gets caught with its pants down, the, the central bank is there to bail it out. So this idea of, you know, the banks creating more loans out of thin air, if you will, and inflating the money supply and having it hit the credit markets where it pushes down interest rates, Mises thought central banking was, you know, exacerbated that. So, yeah, to come back to your original point, Mises, in any, you know, there's entrepreneurship, any particular business person can make a bad forecast. There's always going to be businesses going out of business and laying off workers. But the thing about the business cycle is why does it seem like these mistakes are all correlated? Why does it seem like there's waves of bankruptcies that all line up together every few years? That seems odd. It doesn't seem like it's just some random statistical thing. It seems like they all they come in pockets of, of mistakes. And so the, the you know Mises thought he had given an explanation for that, that it's when the interest rates are artificially low, that sends out the wrong signal. And that's what makes all these entrepreneurs make mistakes that, that you know, eventually they come to realize. Yeah. And there's a, there's a really important sort of subtle difference here between what the Austrians are explaining and sort of a crude version of what's called efficient market hypothesis. I actually heard uh, George Soros one time, he went on this long, he went on this long, I think it was at Cato. He was at like a, a forum or a debate there. And he went on this long diatribe about how, look, Efficient market hypothesis is not entirely true. People don't, you know, they their behavior is not perfectly, you know, predictable. Information has, you know, it's, it doesn't fly perfectly freely in the marketplace. And, you know, people can do this and do that. And the, the economy is not this, this thing where everyone can know and predict. And then he's like, you know, therefore... Um, <laughs> Keynesianism, more or less. Or therefore, his, his real point was therefore Hayek was wrong. And I'm thinking, has this guy ever read Hayek? Because I think it's easy to conflate the idea that markets will perfectly equilibrate with the idea that says, you know, government intervention is going to cause problems. And the Austrians are actually making the opposite point. It's precisely because humans are, uh, don't have perfect information. Um, it's, when you mess with the information they do have in the form of prices and interest rates, you're going to get, you're going to get bad results. So could you, I don't think I'm doing a very good job on this. Could you give me a quick breakdown of the difference between the claim that markets are perfectly efficient, they'll sort it out, which by the way, some people who defend the Fed will say this, they'll say, well, what does it matter? Whatever the Fed does or whatever banks do, the market will, will adjust because that's just, you know, oh, if there's more money, then prices will go up. But it doesn't happen perfectly instantaneously. The information doesn't flow that cleanly. Um, so could you give me a, a quick, dis like, what's the difference between what the Austrians are saying and maybe this idea of this perfectly efficient market? Sure. And I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up. So I have a, if, if people want to just read one thing on this, and I'll try to summarize it here. Yeah. Um, for Mises.org a few years ago, I had a piece titled Bursting Eugene Fama's Bubble. And Fama is spelled F-A-M-A. 
And so Fama is one of the, you know, the godfathers of what you're calling efficient market hypothesis. So um, you're, you're exactly right. It's, it's, in my view, the Austrians are the ones that have the sensible middle ground in this debate. That on the one hand, you've got standard Keynesians who think the market is completely volatile, driven by animal spirits, and we need to have regulators and wise central bankers to come in and, you know, raise interest rates and perhaps do tax hikes when the economy is overheating and then do interest rate cuts and tax cuts and big spending when the economy, you know, is stuck in a rut. And certainly we can't just, you know, there, there's, you can't trust decentralized market forces. The economy is too complex and we, we need to have wise overseers to come in and, 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 you know, steer it away from the cliff kind of thing. And then on the other hand, like you say, a lot of people who are in the Chicago school tradition, um, they think that almost by definition, whatever happens, that's optimal because if, if it weren't, then people would have done something differently. <laughs> Such that you've even got, after the fact, you've got guys like Eugene Fama saying, you know, I don't even get what people are talking about a housing bubble. You know, th th that's not even operationally meaningful. I mean, if, if everybody knew there was a housing bubble, then prices would have come down. So there couldn't be a bubble. You know, he was saying stuff like that even well after the fact. And just, you know, saying, yeah, prices go up and prices go down. But this notion of a, quote, bubble, that's kind of silly. And so, you know, to me, that just sounds crazy. And of course, if that's his view, then he was going to say there's no reason to try to come in and regulate it because, what you know, you can't regulate against something that never happened. He just thinks it's like this, you know, weird. Or, or it wouldn't matter if you regulate right. it, the market will just adjust to the regulation. <laughs> right. So in my mind, the Austrians had the sensible middle ground is to say after the fact, yeah, something screwy happened with the housing sector in the mid 2000s. But, uh, you know, so that shows that entrepreneurs are capable of making bad investments. But then when you see, you got to look at the institutional structural reasons, why, why did so many people go into housing, even though the prices were in some sense, well above what you might think would be the fundamentals. And, you know, the Austrian view, it was because of central bank policy coupled with all the stuff about, you know, Fannie and Freddie and all that. But the, the prime driver for this huge bubble, the Austrian view was, mistakes of central banking policy. And so, yeah, people are fallible. They can make mistakes. And in the Austrian view, you don't fix that by anointing some of them and having them oversee the whole market when they have the wrong incentives and don't have the adequate information to, to make those corrections anyway. You want to have people with skin in the game if you want to use that buzz phrase now and and so on and then let mar market prices do their jobs. I mean, that was part of the issue is a lot of the standard things. When you have a bailout, then all the normal market mechanisms get sabotaged. You know, part of the profit and loss system is that if you do something really risky, well, why might you not make the quick buck if, if you're doing so is really risky? Because you know, if it blows up in your face, you lose money. Well, not if the Fed's there to bail you out after the fact. Yeah. The thing that, that really has always impressed me with the Austrian approach is they're really the only school that has that really take seriously the element of time. So the the economy has a structure, like there's a capital structure to it that the economics is all about, or you know, markets are all about coordinating um, supply with demand, allocating resources, uh, you know, where they're demanded, moving the supply there. But it's not like, here's a widget somebody wants, here's somebody who has a widget, they just need to get it to them. Um, there's all these stages of production. There's the factory that makes the widgets and the factory that makes the tools that make the widgets. And then the factory that makes the tools for the factory that makes the tools. And then there's the, <laughs> the investors, the bankers, and all these things, these projects, they all involve time. So if you want to produce a, a widget that consumers demand, 
you're going to have to invest in some sort of production process that's going to take a long time before you get to where you can actually bring it to market. And that's the role with you know interest rates, basically the price of capital or, or the time preference people have for their money, whether they'd rather have it now or have it later. And at what price are they willing to save it for later, et cetera. That's the part the Austrians really understand so well that, that demonstrates that whenever you have this artificial credit manipulation, you're going to have like specific winners in the short term, whoever has sort of the, the first access to that artificially lower credit, but it's going to send signals to the marketplace to tell them to adjust the, the, the timing of things. And so you get what, what Austrians call malinvestment. So it's not so much like overinvestment or underinvestment. It's investment going to the wrong things that have the wrong sort of time frame given the actual demand in the economy. So can you, was that like an accurate assessment at all? That's how I've always sort of taken that away. And could you expound a little bit on the role of time in this Austrian explanation of the business cycle? Yeah. So you're certainly dead on when you say that the role of time and the structure of production is something fairly unique to the Austrians, particularly when it comes to business cycle theory. And that, that, you know, that's huge. And just, I mean, one way I try to motivate it, and I'm not trying to just be a wise guy with this or, or glib, but I mean, the, the Keynesian view of what happened is, oh, you got your aggregate supply curve and your aggregate demand curve and where those two curves cross. And so, you know, if you don't have rising prices, it must be because of inadequate demand. You know, I mean, if you went to a doctor and said you felt funny and he drew two intersecting lines on a chart and just, you know, asked you one question about your symptoms and then, <laughs> well, because of where these two lines intersect, here's what I'm going to prescribe for you you would run. You would say, no, my body's way more complicated than two lines. And yet that's literally how Keynesians and even some other free market types were diagnosing what was ailing the economy in the midst of the Great Depression or Great Recession, I should say. Right. So, you know, that if, if, the, if the human body is more complicated, certainly an economy composed of millions of people is more complicated than that. So uh, you're right. Is I mean, think of it this way, j just to sort of come at it in, in different degrees. When you go to the grocery store, it's not enough just to say, oh, I have $100 and I'm willing to spend it on products. Your demand doesn't magically create a bunch of goods on the shelves. People mm -hmm. had to make decisions you know, going well into the past in order for those goods to be there. right? If, if you want to go buy milk, it's not enough just for you to say, I'm willing to spend money on milk. There had to be dairy cows involved and there had to be refrigeration techniques and you know, people manufacturing the containers to hold the milk and so forth. And there's got to be power plants providing the electric. So all these millions of decisions and things that had to be close enough in order to make it possible for you and, to go. And some to the of them stretching milk. back those dairy cows. Somebody ten years ago had to, you know, decide to allocate enough resources right. to more dairy cows so that you could have your milk today. Yeah, and so it's you know when you start seriously taking into. I mean, it's so complicated. After we just don't even think about it, but that's. It's not because really it's not that complicated. It's because that the decentralized market process does such a good job of coordinating all those millions and billions of decisions that we kind of don't stop and just be awestruck at, at how amazing that is, that it all works tolerably well so that we're not all starving to death. And so one of the key factors involved with that in sort of regulating that process is the interest rate. And when that's artificially low, I mean, just think about it. What what does that mean if if all of a sudden it's a lot if the interest rate is one percent as opposed to ten percent? Well, projects that require a lot of investment early on and don't reap the revenue from the final customer until you know further down the road, the lower the interest rate, the more those projects suddenly appear more profitable. 
So a real short project, like somebody, you know, you're going to, you're planning a concert that's going to happen three months from now. And you're just, you know, you got to get the vent, you know, get the hot dogs ready and get the people ready to sell the tickets and make sure the band has enough equipment. And so, I mean, you're spending money, but you're going to either turn it all around or, or make a loss three months from now. You don't really care what the interest rate is, but if you're going to build an apartment complex, you know, you're going to spend millions of dollars up front building this huge building and then hope to get a flow of rental revenue from tenants, you know, going decades in the future for that kind of decision. Should I do this project or not? The interest rate is huge. That makes a big difference as to whether that's profitable. So the point is pushing interest rates down, that gives an artificial green light to these longer term projects. And so if that's not really what the underlying preferences of individual consumers wants you to do with the resources, you're going to have this mismatch between what entrepreneurs are doing with the resources compared to what the consumer, in a sense, really wants them to do when they act on their behalf. Yeah. So uh, uh, interest rates going down sort of naturally without an artificial intervention would be the result of more people saving more money, which indicates that they are deferring present consumption for more demand in the future. And then that would send the signal that it is worth investing in longer term projects to to sort of meet that expected future demand. Would that be right? Let's first think about a real simple example. So if all of a sudden people, there's a health craze and everybody stops smoking and starts eating more broccoli or whatever, you know, how does the market economy cater to those new preferences? Well, the price of cigarettes obviously collapses if no one's buying them anymore. And so ultimately the price of tobacco falls. And so now farmers realize I shouldn't plant any more tobacco because the price just collapsed. And so people start, you know, they're growing more broccoli or whatever, or, you know, I don't know what the climate's like, but you, you get what I'm saying. Farmers change what they're yep. doing so that more broccoli comes forth and less tobacco. Right. And that, that makes sense. And you can see how market prices would get. It's not that the individual farmer needs to know exactly how many people quit smoking. They just look at market prices to see what happened with agricultural prices to guide them and their planting decisions. Okay, fine. So by the same token, if, if consumers as a whole decide, gee, I really think we should save more. I, I want to you know, have more available for our retirement years than for right now. Households, they stop going out to restaurants. They don't go to as many movies right now. They don't maybe buy as fancy of a, of a car and they save more. You know, so more money is going to their mutual fund, into their, into their savings account, the bank, whatever other kinds of investments they might have. And ultimately, that increase in saving pushes down interest rates and gives entrepreneurs the green light to engage in longer term projects, projects where the fruit coming out of the pipeline at the other end might not now come out for 20 years as opposed to a much shorter process. So by the same token as, you know, quitting cigarettes and eating more broccoli, market prices adjust if society wants to you know, get away from short term immediate gratification and be willing to wait decades for stuff down the road, the one of the ways market prices get entrepreneurs to switch is by having the interest rate drop. Do you think it's harder for the Federal Reserve? I know there are other entities involved as well, but do you think it's harder for the Fed to sort of manipulate the economy with some artificial stimulus and whatever than it used to be because there's more information available and it's it's slightly more transparent. So if if sort of all the actors in the market know that, oh, this low interest rate is partially induced by the Fed creating more money, we can see that, then they'll be sort of more hesitant. It will sort of curb that, right? Like I know there's not perfect transparency and you can never know exactly where the credit's going. And there's also sort of a 
hey, as long as I'm not the last in line, I'll still benefit, even though I know it's artificially low. Um, but do you think that it, it reduces the ability of the Fed to sort of manipulate behavior with those artificial rates if there's a higher level of transparency of what's going on? So the quick answer is yes, I think you're exactly right. Um, it, it's a little tricky. And in one way, maybe we can hit this topic is there's a standard objection to Austrian business cycle theory that says, well, wait a minute. You know, in, in the way that Mises originally wrote about this stuff, he makes it sound like the entrepreneurs are just chugging along, minding their own business, looking at, at interest rates. And then the central bank, you know, through its actions, pushes down interest rates and then all the entrepreneurs are fooled. And that's what causes the recurring business cycle. And the, so the objection is, I thought business people were supposed to be smart. How come they're not learning from these mistakes? How, you know, aren't business people reading Ludwig von Mises? You know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> And so there's there's different ways that Austrians try to respond to that. And um, so one element is to say it's not purely just a matter of information that I mean, like, in a, loosely speaking, if the Federal Reserve is handing out hundred dollar bills to people to then go buy equipment with, that's real. You know, what I mean, like, it doesn't matter that the other people can say, oh, we know that's all fake. Those hundred dollar bills are still legal tender. Yeah, no, so nobody. The, the Bush yeah. stimulus checks that people got, people weren't saying, "Hey, this is this is artificial," so I'm not going to spend it. Right. So, so there there is that element that you know there is part of an issue of just giving more money to certain people. I mean, that is going to affect prices, even if everyone knows full well what's going on. And the, the other element too is market prices serve. You know, they they perform a role, and so you can't say that if everybody, in other words, were able to look at what the Fed were doing, look at Fed policy, and then back out and say, oh, interest rates really ought to be 6.9%, well, then you wouldn't need prices in the first place. If you could just look at the underlying fundamentals and know what the price should be, yeah. then you don't need the, the price ever. And so th there's that element too. But even conceding all that or stipulating all that, I think you're right that, I, I think that's partly why maybe these rounds of QE didn't seem to do too much this last time and that they had to keep doing bigger and bigger announcements is because, yeah, I think that once everyone kind of knew what was happening, some of it sort of canceled out. The people just came to expect it, and you had to do bigger and bigger rounds of it to get the same bang for the buck, as it were. So the um, the 2008 housing you know, bubble bursting, there's a lot of great articles, videos, all kinds of stuff that does a really great job of explaining. Actually, one of my favorites is a little booklet by Fee called The House That Uncle Sam Built. But um kind of explaining, and I know you've written on this as well, several things, explaining, here's what happened. Many Austrians, including you, I think about a year beforehand, you know, predicted that something like this was going to happen. There was going to be a steep recession because of all this credit. And most of it was flowing into the housing industry for various policy reasons and other reasons. Um, and that was where the, the bubble was mostly centered. And the, the theory does a phenomenal job. And houses actually provide a great a really tangible way to explain the theory because it is this sort of longer term project and we can sort of see that the built houses that never got sold. And so it's a great way of explaining the theory and, and Austrian business cycle theory had a really a nice uh, surge in interest in the you know year or two following that that crash. Now I hardly hear anything about it. All I hear is people saying, oh, sure, the Peter Schiff's of the world or the people who think it, all they're just always claiming we're in a bubble. And like every once in a while, they're right, because that's all they say all the time anyway. Um, but I, I haven't heard a lot about it right now. So could you give me with a with an Austrian perspective, what's going on in the economy today? 
What do you think is is happening? Um, what what are sort of some of the indicators that are being you know manipulated with some some phony government shenanigans? And what do you think is going to be the result of that? Sure. So just on the point about you know the the bubble and then the Austrian versus Keynesian explanations in the immediate aftermath of the crash of two thousand eight. You know what happened. Uh, I would point people, it's, if you go to contracrewman.com slash 99, it'll be that episode 99 that you, uh, Isaac, referred to before. Perfect. And we'll link we, to all this as well. Yeah, where we're, it'll go through um, to talk about that. Because it's, it's not just a priori, you know, big picture stuff, like in terms of specific empirical uh, things that Paul Krugman brought up. And then we, on his own terms, I think it showed that, yeah, the Austrian story is much more compelling. But as, as far as right now, um, and, and I should give a disclaimer that I thought we would see more measured consumer price inflation by now than we have. So I, I don't want to at all come off like I'm saying I was a you know a pro, somebody who, who called everything and had a crystal ball. But I think right now the issue is that the Fed is tightening, and but they're, they've sort of painted themselves into a corner. That part of how they got out of the immediate crisis of 2008 was the Fed bought up boatloads of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries. And so that sort of you know stabilized the housing market and rescued a bunch of those investment banks that otherwise were going to go under because they were either sitting on mortgage-backed securities or- Which should have gone under. It would right. have been better for everyone in the right. long yeah, term. Right. Yeah. I totally agree. But that's what the decision they made. And so now I think the issue- So they, in effect, created trillions of dollars of high-powered money and inject it in the financial sector in order to absorb all of these dodgy bonds that are now on the Fed's balance sheet. And so now that they want to start raising interest rates, you know, the textbook method would be to start selling off the assets and then sucking the money out of the system. But I think they're afraid to do that because they're afraid that would raise, you know, yields on treasuries if they start selling treasuries. So that would make it harder for the U.S. government to finance its humongous debt. And if they start selling off mortgage-backed securities, I think they're afraid that that would crash the housing market again. So they're still holding all these securities that they bought up to, to right. sort of bail out. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, no. if you look, yeah, if you look at like um, the the balance sheet of the, or just look at like total Federal Reserve assets, something like that, you'll see that it it kept going up in huge waves during what was called quantitative easing, and then it it tapered off when Yellen came in. The Fed's purchases started slowing down month to month in terms of the, the net additions to their assets. And it finally bottomed out um, in the fall of 2014. But it's just been rolling over its assets, right? So it's true the Fed hasn't been inflating since the fall of 2014, but it also hasn't been selling. And so some of your listeners might be confused. Wait a minute, they've been raising rates. How are they doing that? And the mechanism they're using is they're raising the amount of interest that the Fed pays to commercial banks to keep their reserves parked at the Fed. Uh, so the, the normal textbook mechanism when the Fed wants to tighten is to sell off assets and suck money out of the system. Here, they're not doing that. They're just raising the amount that they're basically subsidizing commercial bankers to keep their money parked at the Fed rather than lending it out you know, to their ultimate customers. Hmm. So they can do that for a while. They have some way with them because they're earning, the Fed's earning so much income off of its assets that it can give more and more of it you know, to bankers to keep their money parked at the Fed. And that's the way they're raising interest rates, even though they're not selling off assets. But at some point, they're going to want run out of wiggle room. And so that's kind of the situation they're in now. Hmm. So you would have predicted because of this, that um, this sort of, you know, expanding 
expanding money supply or the uh, inability or unwillingness to to sell those assets and suck some money back out of the system would result in um, consumer prices going up more than they have. Why, why do you think that hasn't been the case? Well, there's a, a few reasons. Uh, so one thing is the, the mechanism I just talked about that it happened, I think it was in October of 2008. So remember the, the crisis really hit in September of 2008. And then a month later, the Fed got um, implemented this new, what was then a new policy of paying interest on reserves. Okay, so that, that was one element where, again, the, the Fed is literally paying banks, you know, to keep their money part of the Fed. So that's guaranteed money because the Fed's good for it. So that's one reason that commercial banks didn't lend out the, this new money flooding. And another thing is just, you know, business prospects were bad. The, you know, the, the real estate market was crashing. A lot of people were going under. So just normal reasons of just watching your portfolio, a bank's going to be very careful about you know, giving loans to people in that kind of environment and everybody's trying to pay down their debt. So that's another reason too, that you didn't see a huge expansion in private credit, right? You know, when this crisis is hitting. Um, and then another thing is just the demand for liquid assets went way up. So a different way of putting it is to say, had the Fed not pumped in all that money, consumer prices probably would have fallen fairly substantially as everybody tightened up and wanted to increase their cash balances. And so the two things largely offset each other. So you still saw consumer prices gently rising, even though in that kind of a panicked environment, normally you might have expected prices to fall when everybody tries to save more. So I think it was a combination of, of those various things. The other thing, too, is it depends what you mean by the price index. So certainly asset prices, commodity prices went way up with those various rounds of QE, but you didn't see like the price of bread go way up. And I think that makes sense. People are worried about their jobs. You know, speculators aren't going to come in and buy loaves of bread. They're going to go buy gold and you know stocks and real estate and stuff like that in, in Australia when um, you know in, in 2010, for example. So, what would you say if you were to to look at your Robert Murphy's crystal ball? And I know this is like the question economists hate the most. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe some don't. But what do you what do you expect in the next two to three years? Do you do you assume that the economy is just going to kind of stay where it's been. Is there, is there something looming? Is there some sector that's way out of whack? That's going to have to get corrected. What would you predict uh, happening in the, in the sort of shorter term couple year span, um, you know, macro economically? Well, I do need to have a dose of humility because again, I, I thought things would have come to a head sooner than, or, you know, by this point already. So you can, you can always throw yeah. in the ceteris paribus qualifier yeah. <laughs> and that lets you off the hook with everything. It, it, yeah. If nothing the, else changes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think that, um, you know, as they are tightening now, and it's not just the fed, but other central banks around the world are sort of, you know, signaling their intentions to start tightening and raising rates that I, I think the U S has been in this weird calm before the storm where, you know, the, the federal debt went way up under the Obama administration. There were four years in a row where the deficit was more than a trillion dollars. Four years in a row that was the case. So just enormous sums, but yet there, it doesn't feel that oppressive because interest rates went down to zero during the same period, right? Yeah. And so the huge expansion of the debt in terms of the annual servicing costs didn't explode. So I think as, as interest rates start to rise, you're just going to feel the pinch of that. Um, and not just you know in terms of the federal government, but across various sectors, as, as rates start to rise, people are going to feel the pinch. 
And again, this problem of the Fed is going to try to start selling. It's going to have to start selling off its assets eventually. As, the as, housing market is going to crash again, or I don't know about decline? I don't know if crash is the right word, but certainly things are tightening up. And I, if you, for example, if you look at the S and P five hundred index plotted against the Fed's balance sheet, the, the from two thousand nine to twenty fourteen, those things move very you know much in lockstep. And so I think a lot of the rise in asset prices during the Obama administration, you know, but people are Keynesians running victory laps and going, aha, I thought you right wingers said, you know, Obama was bad for the economy. We'll look at the stock market. I think that was largely driven by the Fed. And so I think as they tighten, you know, the, the U.S. stock market is going to come down. And these Treasury rates, I think, again, are it's a weird thing where, the yeah, the federal government's been racking up huge debt. But everybody around the world is still really concerned about the future. And so they flock to treasuries thinking those are a safe asset. So it's this weird thing where I, I think people don't realize how much debt has actually been issued. And I think as, as rates start rising again, that that's going to be more of an issue. Do you feel like, do you ever feel like you are always the one who's a buzzkill on the party and who's, and who's like, Hey, you know, there's there's something bad lurking around the corner because governments are always engaging in this shenanigans and it's easy when you understand the negative effects it has to just be really focused on that whereas at the same time as a lot of phony stuff is going on phony stimulated industries and things that are you know growth that isn't real there's also real stuff there's innovation there's really cool you know booms going on in this or that industry. And there's a lot of good stuff and opportunity, but it's really easy to sort of take this lens of understanding the problems of artificial credit expansion and just be like constantly a bear, like saying everything's about to collapse. (laughs) Do you ever feel like that? Or are you overall, like, where do you see opportunity and real growth happening? I I totally get what you're saying. uh, And the point's well taken. Um, It's funny, right, right after Trump won, you know, I, I was pointing out to some of his pro growth things and I was, you know, I was telling people who knows what he's going to say because, you know, what he's going to do because he he could depends what day of the week it is. But I, I did offer something. Somebody came up afterwards. And said, hey, that was the most optimistic uh, talk I've ever heard you give. Right. <laughs> so unfortunately, obviously, as we know, in retrospect, you know, he, he hasn't delivered on a lot of that stuff, let alone foreign policy. But, um, yeah, it, it's not that I'm a perma bear. It is just that the stuff that's been happening the last several years, in my mind, has been really disastrous policy. Um, I mean, I, I was a big, uh, a big fan of the possibility of Bitcoin once I really studied it and, and learned how it works. So, I mean, I, I do think there are rays of hope long term, but, but yeah, in terms of the the near future, it, it to me it seems like various governments of the world, the central banks in particular just bought themselves some time using more unsustainable policies. So I think you're going to see the chickens come home to roost from that stuff before we get to the other side of it. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, you know, a huge fan of, um, Bitcoin and crypto in general for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but it is pretty interesting to see you've kind of had a lot more capital flowing into startups, angel investments, VC firms, whatever. And that's kind of a big hot thing. And everyone's like, oh, it's a bubble. It's a bubble. Oh, there's there's a lot of froth. Some of it's probably a bubble. Some of it's... And then you've seen a lot of capital recently started to flow into all these different cryptocurrencies. And some of these are straight up Ponzi schemes. Some of them are really cool. Some of them, it's really hard to know if it's ever going to be real. But I think the interesting thing is you have 
IPOs, companies listing on stock exchanges, are declining like crazy. You've got basically people with capital are looking for something new that's not so associated with the sort of old, you know, government corporate credit regime. Uh, they're trying to look for someplace to put their capital, whether it's gold or cryptocurrency or some kind of, you know, angel investments in startups, then to, to diversify beyond the financial sector um, traditionally. And I think that's a, I think that's perhaps a sign that, um, you know, the future of Wall Street and, uh, you know, that those traditional financial sectors maybe isn't too bright. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I think, you know, way more about the crypto space than I do. So I'm certainly not, you know, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough to weigh in on certain things. I'm just saying in general, the fact that, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem like technologically speaking or intellectually speaking. Now there's this new way to, to have a, a currency that, you know, is completely beyond the reach of, of regulators and, and so on. And even third party uh, management. Yeah. To me, that was just a, a great thing. Uh, and just, in general, the, the, the rise of decentralization and the way that the internet and other technologies are making that more and more possible, I, I think ultimately, at least the next, you know, my lifetime, that's really where the oases of freedom are going to lie is in people kind of seceding, you know, practically speaking, whether or not politically, from these various broader systems that I think are, are going to come, whether crashing down is the right term or just suffer a huge blow. I think people kind of pulling back and, and being able to be self-sustaining in these various different networks is going to help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, I'm going to give you a final question, and this is going to be like a softball for you. Um, it, what's the one economic myth or misunderstanding that you would most like to smash and eradicate from the face of the earth? Um. I mean, I would might change my mind if you get, if you ask me in ten minutes from now. But I think the idea that the gold standard failed and that's sort of what caused the Great Depression. I, I really think if people understood the the true history behind that and the importance of what the classical liberals called sound money, I, I think that would really help a lot. That the, the idea of you know without having a, a stable monetary unit, without that being in a sense like a like a measurement to have out there to, to be able to plan on and so on. I really think that that distorts a lot of, of people's understanding of, of how the economy works. Uh, Bob, where's the best place people can uh, find you and follow you? Uh, my website is consulting by rpm.com. So consulting rpm.com. And that's kind of the, the clearing house for all the different things I got going on. Awesome. We will list that and everything else in the show notes. Thank you so much for uh, joining me. Thanks for having me. You bet.